0: This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello, I'm Alice Gray and welcome to another episode of Inside the Petri Dish, the podcast that puts science under the microscope. Given the unprecedented circumstances and uncertain times we're facing, our podcast is bringing you a number of COVID special podcast episodes with interviews with experts about the pandemic. In this episode, we're joined by Dr. Amber Wheatley, a GP based in Bangor, North Wales, who talks to us about the issues GP surgeries have faced during the pandemic and the confusion surrounding should we or shouldn't we be wearing masks when we leave the house? The guidance for GPs in the pandemic was muddy waters, is the best way I can describe it. See, in general practice, we weren't getting any additional information to the general public. So... I think the only difference between myself and a lay person would be how much I monitored it. But basically, when the government released information, it was to everyone. We didn't get any sneak peeks. My name is Dr. Amber Wheatley, and I am currently a GP trainee. I'm in my second year of training. I went on holiday just before the government recognized that the pandemic was something they should care about. So I was flying from Boston, actually, to come back to Wales. And I could see on the news, President Trump was saying that, you know, he's going to um, lock the borders, and all of these Americans who were stuck in Europe were having a hard time coming in. And then I worked GP out of hours the day that I arrived, and everything was completely different we were no longer seeing patients, everything was done over the phone. And it was one of those moments where there was both innovation and a lot of anxiety about the unknown. What it's been like working as a GP in this pandemic can simply not be put into words. There's so much confusion. And the thing that exacerbated it all the most was, and I don't think that I fully come to grips with how much my practice has changed. But it was definitely something new. The guidance for GPs in the pandemic was muddy waters, is the best way I can describe it. See, in general practice, we weren't getting any additional information to the general public. So I think the only difference between myself and a lay person would be how much I monitored it. But basically when the government released information it was to everyone we didn't get any sneak peek essentially one of the the more notable moments was that every time boris johnson made a speech about the pandemic almost immediately after we'd be flooded with calls about well what does this mean for me and what does he mean by that and you know we would be (laughs) sort of listening in very intensely trying to like pick out exactly what might make our patients anxious and then the manager at the practice i was working at would almost try to create a preempted guidance about the guidance the government releases. Um, and the most important thing about that was with the shielding letters. So before the government actually issued the shielding letters, all the doctors in the practice and the manager actually tried to estimate which patients would be shielding and which ones wouldn't to try and give them you know, information as soon as possible. Because obviously with a pandemic, either it's there or it isn't. So you can't wait until you've had a meeting and had discussions and thought about it for a little while and then plan a date in the future. It's like, if the pandemic is there, it's there. So we were trying to give our patients updated information to help them plan their life. So it was very confusing uh, because, you know, we sort of gave advice on what we thought. And then a few days later, a few weeks later, the government would say something different and our patient population would be like, oh, well, I was told by a doctor to shield for 12 weeks and I haven't been to work, but I haven't got a letter and now they're asking for a sick note. The bulk of my work was basically trying to relate the guidance that the government had issued to an individual's life. Most of the questions that we got around the pandemic were, "Okay, the government has said this, but what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my particular scenario? And certainly at the start of the pandemic, that made up most of of the phone calls. You know, people who had outpatient appointments that were cancelled, then wondering, does that mean I will never have my cataract surgery or my hip operation and all the rest of it. Those who lived with someone who was shielding, especially before they issued the letter, weren't sure if that meant that they also had to shield or they were allowed to go out. And if they were allowed to go out, when could they go out? At the very start, before any guidance on wearing masks and stuff, they were like, should I wear a mask? Should I not? Will will the government issue me a mask? Can I buy it from the practice? Especially before they closed the school, it was a lot of parents say, oh, well, my kid was a bit warm and they think it was a fever, but we don't have a thermometer and should I keep them in school? Should they go? Should the school even be open? And, you know, at the time we were sort of giving our best advice with the information we had. So it was, it was a lot of deciphering the guidance, basically. The PPE at the surgery I worked at, again, they were so on the ball with preparing for everything. I I can't fault them. So we had a gown, a plastic apron, and we had a helmet with a visor on in addition to the mask and gloves. And we had it right from the get-go. We had basically um, PPE packs. So they had the shoe covers, they had disposable thermometers, and it contrasted quite significantly with what was happening in hospital because I also did a few locum shifts. And in hospital, I was like, okay, I'm going to swab this patient for COVID. Where's the gown? And they said, oh, this is what we have. And I said, yeah, that's a plastic apron. But where's the gown that it goes over? And they were like, oh, no, that's, that's all we've been given. And I remember asking a senior. I was like, yeah, so what about the gowns that you're supposed to have in hospital? And he printed off the World Health Organization PPE recommendation and said, just follow this. And I said, yeah, so according to this, I should have a gown that is not existing. <laughs> so I definitely felt significantly safer with the PPE in the community than what was available in hospital. The government, I feel, should have definitely invested more effort into a community-based approach rather than hospital, because we're the people on the ground, essentially. They did need to invest both in community and in hospitals, but I think focusing all their effort on hospitals was with this expectation that the pandemic had already gotten out of control. But actually, if you looked at the World Health Organization advice, what they said is the majority of people who have symptoms can be managed at home, isn't it? So that would be in the community. A lot of the calls that I had were people who were like, "Okay, I've got a temperature I'm shielding at home. Is there anything else I need to do? You know, what do you recommend? Or seven days had gone by and they still weren't feeling quite right and were asking the GP for advice. That was... That was where the community aspect of it really came into play. In addition to that, a lot of the GP practices, especially the one in the cluster that I was working in, actually got together and came up with a fever hub to streamline who would go to hospital and who could be managed at home. And the biggest thing for me was the letters, the shielding letters. So when the shielding letters did finally come, a lot of the calls were either from patients who had received a letter who felt that they didn't need one, or who felt they needed one and didn't receive a letter. And out of curiosity, I asked, I was like, who sends the letters? Because we all assumed it would be coming from the GPs, but it wasn't. And then we found out that it was actually coming from hospital lists. So there was this assumption that the patients who would be in the very high risk category that required a shielding letter would be the ones who would be having a lot of input from the um, specialists the secondary care and tertiary care. And so those lists were what were used to come up with a shielding letter. And we were all a bit baffled because we were like, okay, yeah, they've had input from the specialist. And if it's obviously really severe, they'd have more input than others. But at the same time, the general practitioner is the one who monitors when they need input from the specialist. (laughs) You know, we're the ones, we're we're the gatekeepers. That's what we are known as. We're the ones who follow up the patients in the community. More often than not, the specialist will say any issues, either ring the secretary or ring your own GP. So In my personal opinion, I felt that the GPs were in a much better position to decide who needed a shielding letter and who didn't. The use of masks for this pandemic, I feel it's a distraction what's actually happening, to be honest. The uptake hasn't been that good. And I think that that's a, a reflection of the government's attitude towards the pandemic. It's like the pandemic's been going on for like four months now. And now you want to make masks mandatory. I was like, when I saw that, I was, I was literally like, what? like, how oblivious are you to what's happening that four months after the fact, you think, oh yeah, no, now we'll wear the mask. To me, I don't blame the general public for not wearing masks, to be honest, because it's too little too late essentially it's like if you haven't had proper ppe for your healthcare staff if you haven't prioritized the health of your public in keeping making it possible to keep up with social distancing why would they trust you when you tell them oh yeah wear the mask especially when you have had people on your own pandemic task force or advisory board breaking their own rules of course of course the public wouldn't follow the guidance the use of masks for me is a very touchy issue because I know some people feel that well it's the least you could do and in in my mind it's like no the least you could have done was like four months ago wear the mask like at this point now the virus is already in the community and it's like putting a band-aid on a flesh wound (laughs) and I can totally understand why some people wouldn't see the relevance of wearing the mask or the importance of wearing the mask because in the grand scheme of things it's like you, you can't treat the day that the mask mandate comes in as day one of the pandemic because it's it's four months later, like no matter what way you look at it, it's four months later. One of the things I found was really interesting is that as much as I hate to admit it, America really has set the tone for the mask thing, but obviously they have their own agenda. So one of the points that I raised in the article I wrote was the reason why America was pushing for the mask so hard is because the mask was literally the only other option they had left if they were going to open up their economy. Because you can't have the same level of production with social distancing. They were like, right, we're not social distancing, but the last thing that we have, the only other measure that the WHO recommended that we're going to follow is wash your hands and wear a mask. And that's why they pushed so hard for it. I totally believe that the lack of clear government guidance has left people a bit confused and cause a lot of the poor compliance because people don't know what they're complying to. Whenever you have a situation where the person that you're looking to for leadership is unclear, your instant instinct is to come up with your own conclusion. It's to try and make sense of the data that's around you. So if four months into the pandemic, people have been following their own instruction or the instruction of someone else or doing their own research, what you end up with is having a variety of conclusions. So if the government says you shouldn't travel more than um, a five-mile radius for your home, but the Minister of Health has traveled to her second home, as we saw with the Minister of Health in Scotland, twice, then you're just like, okay, well, that means if I have enough money, I can do whatever I want, or if no one catches me, I can do whatever I want. And that's why I feel that there's been such a mix of, compliance because there's some people who are like well the government yes they've changed their mind however this is what i've concluded and i'm gonna stay inside and wear my mask and hand hygiene and all the rest of it and social distance when i'm out and then there are other people who've been like oh well i don't know anyone who's had the virus and i think the government doesn't know what they're talking about so i'm gonna do what i want and i'm not gonna follow that advice and i'll be okay and then you end up with these two people colliding in public and it's just even more confusion that the BAME community have with getting information on a whole is that we often don't trust media and I'm including myself in that. For almost the entire history of, of human existence, media has been biased and for a lot of black people in particular, the way that we're portrayed in the media causes us to just not trust the media. If, if the media says something, we know that there's been some backstory, they've twisted the words As a result of that kind of background, uh, a lot of people in the Black, Asian, and minority ethnic community don't necessarily turn to the news for accurate information. On top of that, within healthcare, I mean, the NHS is not immune to systematic racism. A lot of people in my social circle particularly don't trust their GP. They will sooner ask me than to ask the doctor that they're registered to. They want my opinion on whether or not they should go to the doctor and what they should say so that the color of their skin doesn't dictate the outcome of their interaction with the doctor. And if you're working extra hours in a pandemic surrounded by people who are unwell, taking public transport surrounded by people and then going home to a cramped environment, yeah, it does affect your health. You know, when you live in an area where there is poor quality of supermarkets, and you can't get access to healthy food and you don't have a recreational centre where you can actually exercise. You don't have the free time to even exercise because you have to work so many hours to earn less than someone who's white. It takes a toll on your health. So throwing in a pandemic on top of that, like, of course, of course, there would be a higher rate of mortality. In addition to being a GP trainee, I also work with uh, the Centre for African Entrepreneurship, which is based in Swansea, but does cater to Wales as a whole. When it was first published that uh, those who were in Black, Asian and other ethnic minority groups had a higher mortality with COVID, there was a lot of fear within the community about, oh my God, what does this mean? Like on top of everything else we have to deal with, now there's a virus that seems to be out to get us. And especially for the community that the Center for African Entrepreneurship serves, which includes asylum seekers, who aren't able to social distance, who have pre-existing barriers to accessing healthcare, I sort of took it upon myself to say something for the community. So I um, have written articles. One is about uh, wearing the use of the face mask. And I did a quick video that was explaining a little bit about what the virus was and the importance of keeping it simple. So when you're in a high-stress environment, a lot of people who are dealing with sort of racial stress, as it's known, being bombarded with extra information about something that's already quite frightening can get you very confused and make it difficult to deal with. So I was like, right, this is, I think the video was only about five or six minutes long. So it was a very simple, this is what the virus is. This is why we're worried about it. This is all you need to worry about to keep yourself safe. So I was like social distance if you can, make sure you use cough and sneeze etiquette, make sure you wash your hands or use hand gel if it's not available. And if you just do those basic things, you should be okay. If you ever have any doubts, you can phone your general practitioner or access um, the NHS Wales website. And it, one other important thing that I pointed out to them was the use of mental health services. So there was a lot of obviously increased anxiety about COVID. So organizations like mine were really helpful to get people sort of a bit more calm, so to speak, to have someone to talk to if they were having a particular health anxiety that didn't require them to have to go through the doctor because some people aren't registered with a GP as well. I found it very entertaining actually to see how different the pandemic was handled in my home country of the British Virgin Islands compared to here. I was actually really happy because the last thing I want to have to do is worry about my own safety, the safety of my patients and my family. So the British Virgin Islands, it's super small. I think when our tourism industry was still booming, we had like a population of 35,000. It's dropped down a little bit now. But I think we had one case and from then the government shut the whole country down. So the airport, the ferry terminals, the schools, everything was, was shut. The only way that you could be exempt from it was to apply for an exemption and you had to be a key worker uh, in order to get this exemption passed from the police. Now you could argue that they went a little bit overboard because whereas in the UK the in quotations lockdown meant that businesses were closed uh, and you were sort of advised to leave the house once a day but you weren't really being policed as such in the Virgin Islands because it was so small. Like There were police patrolling, there was a massive fine if you were found outside of your house even if you were just a few steps away from your house, if you were outside and you weren't holding an exemption pass, you still got fined. And I think there was one instance where someone was actually put in jail, uh, being caught outside without an exemption. And they were very strict with their quarantine as well. So regarding travel, if you were a British Virgin Islander outside of the country who wanted to return home, you had to apply for permission to return. When you got there, you had to have a mandatory COVID swabs. You had to be quarantined in an authorized quarantine facility. You weren't allowed to see friends and family and all the rest of it. And regardless of whether or not your COVID swab came back negative, you still have to quarantine for 14 days. And although a lot of people in the country complain, they've actually managed to keep their mortality rate ridiculously low. And I mean, there was one instance where there was a rumor of a COVID case after a party on one of the islands. And the government shut down the whole island and made everyone have a swab. It was obviously, it wasn't mandatory. You could you could decline to have it, but they made the whole population have a swab. Having said that, the population's only 400. But yeah, when the, the next day when they were like, oh, we're really sorry, you know, it's a false positive and you apologize for acting the way we did, but you have to understand it's coming from a place of safety. And a lot of people were saying that the government is becoming tyrannical and it's a dictatorship. And I was like, listen, I've had to tell some people that they're going to die because of this infection. And I really wish that our government in the UK cared as much as the BVI government does about its people because in the face of people calling them a dictatorship of criticizing that they're jeopardizing the economy of even criticizing them of reverse racism because they're not letting non-BVI come in they've kept the mortality really low they have protected their key workers and their healthcare care service and they have protected their population. And one of my pet peeves is that the argument, I guess, counteracts the measures that the government takes And is, oh, well, domestic violence is on the rise and mental health problems are on the rise, and it's because of the lockdown. I would argue that it's not because of the lockdown. Those problems were always there, and the lockdown just made it harder to ignore. It made it harder to ignore that most governments in the world would rather invest in their defense budget than in their social services or mental health. And this is the result of it. You can't ignore it anymore. I want to talk a bit about, I guess, my idealistic hope for how I wish things had gone. So I think in my ideal rose-tinted world, what I would have preferred to happen with the easing of lockdown restrictions was, yes, the opening of restaurants, cafes, salons, barbershops, social clubs as well, and gyms. The reason being, I lived two doors down from a pub. The day that the pub reopened, the car park, which is where I parked my car, was absolutely packed with people. The next day, the street was littered with beer cans. I could hear people screaming drunken in the night. And then I looked out my window and I could see the dance studio that I normally dance in, Pagan's Pole Dance Studio. And it's still (laughs) shut because the gyms aren't allowed to open. Now, I remembered when I moved to Bangor, the only reason I went to Pagan's Pole was because it was a few doors down from where I live. I had never done any aerial or pole dancing before, but I thought, well, I'll give it a try. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? And I wish that that's the approach People were allowed to make. I wish it wasn't this rush to get back to normal. I wish they were like, hey, listen, the social club that you've been ignoring your entire life, the dance studio you've been ignoring, the gym you've been ignoring is now open. Try something else that does not involve alcohol, that does not involve you drowning your sorrows in a mind altering substance. And maybe people would have been able to put all that self reflection about their mental health and all the rest of it in a different context. Maybe they would have become a bit more aware of the small businesses in their community. I don't know. But maybe they would have done something different so that when we do open back eventually, we don't go back to normal. We go back to better. You've been given this opportunity to reevaluate what's important to you. A lot of people, including myself, have been forced to budget for the first time in a long time to actually look at their finances and think about the life that they want and how much money they want in their bank accounts and who in their social circle matters to them and what matters to them and how valuable their time is. And I wish that we would put all of that effort towards dreaming for something better than what we left.